Poetry Month continues on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. How do you spend your Sundays? Mark Schwiebert will tell us about his on Scribble. It was a chance remark you made. About Sunday is your time for creativity. And I thought, is that when you write poems? Well, actually, what I try to do is, uh, you know, the concept of the Sabbath to me makes a great deal of sense of having one day a week that you take away from your usual workday life and mm-hmm. the other things you do the rest of the week. And so on Sundays, I try to carve out that time to do creative things, whether it's writing poetry or essays. I do some columns for the paper now and then, as uh, some people have probably suffered through. Um, and uh, do some musical composition. And Sundays a day I try to uh, carve out to reserve time to do those things because other events in daily life so oftentimes encroach on time that you might like to do those things on other days. I just don't understand people who are organized. (laughs) (laughs) Says the person who's been doing a radio program, writing a newspaper column, and holding down three or four other jobs for the last 50 years. Yeah. (laughs) In a blinding panic every step of the way. (laughs) Yeah, but isn't that, that's sort of true, I think, of creative undertaking, you know, that what looks effortless when it's finally public, made public, is, yeah, the result of a lot of doubt and panic and, you know, but that doesn't sound like your Sundays. It doesn't sound like you're panicking. No, I am. Um, I guess nature's kind of my muse. We live mm-hmm. close to Blackhawk Park, and it's a... About a block away and do a lot of walking over there. Yeah. I did even more in the past when we had a little dog that would take us for walks, mm-hmm. uh, as anyone who's a dog owner knows. Um, and uh, on those walks, you take inspiration from what you see yes. around you. So nature is kind of my muse. And I come home from that and will oftentimes uh, write something uh, uh, either related to what I've seen that day or ideas that came while walking in, yeah. in a natural setting. Uh, you're only the second person I met to explain it that way. Uh, Murray Hurt had to write a daily column, and I asked him how he did it. He said, well, if I can't think of anything, I jump in the car, drive around till I see something that sparks an idea, mm-hmm. then I come back and write a column about it. That sounds a little like Bill Wondrum, another one of our journalists who wrote a daily column for many years. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when he started, I went over to see him to sympathize with him. How are you going to manage, Bill? He says, got any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of one of the first poets I met whose work I had read when I was younger, Olga Brumis, who is from Greece. And her whole thing was to walk um, and then come back and write or to walk and come back and revise. And she said there's something about, yes, it's the outdoors, but it's – it's your heart rate going up, mm-hmm. and it's the breathing in the air. And she said, you know, writers are sort of notorious for crouching in their studies by mm-hmm. their typewriters and not breathing very deeply. And other mm-hmm. artists, 
our stretching canvases and, mm. you know, dancing and moving. And it's only writers that – and she she just said if I have memorized one of my poems, I go for a walk and I come back and write it out and it's different mm-hmm. than the earlier draft, I know that the new one's better because mm-hmm. I just – you know, what needed to fall away fell away because I was moving. Boy, and, that's true. Summertime <laughs> is my time to move. And this winter, I've been inert. Yeah. And uh, it makes a difference. Yeah. So, uh, but you were so organized. That I remember the first time we did a series of poets for Poetry Month. I think it was back in 2015 when Tweet and I were doing the show. We had you on, and you were the third poet who was also a lawyer. Oh, yeah. And that impressed me. I thought, what is it? How does that happen? Is it just that you spend so much time organizing thoughts, writing, and so on? Well, I, you know, I think there are probably two explanations for that. And first of all, it's nice to have something good said about lawyers because sometimes that's <laughs> kind of hard to find. But I think one of the things that probably facilitates it for lawyers is we're wordsmiths. I mean, one of the things that lawyers basically do, their stock and trade, are the words they sure. craft, whether it's arguments in court or whether it's briefs or contracts or things like that. The other thing, I think, is that you're using one side of the brain in the legal arena and the other side of the brain kind of goes uh, undernourished in writing creatively, like poetry, music, um, uh, or short stories, things like that, are all things that allow you to use the other side of the brain. And so I think it kind of is complementary, just like the idea of walking is complementary to Mm -hmm. writing because... As physicians will tell you, the walking is a great way of stimulating blood flow, which in turn is good for the brain and allows you to think more efficiently and effectively. So I think it all fits together, but that's probably pretty logical. You have to kind of get out of the the box of thinking with one side of the brain to the other, but once you start doing it, I find it really rewarding and refreshing. Well, walking can also be exhausting, but uh, (laughs) that's because I'm out of practice. (laughs) Uh, is it always poetry, or do you write other things? Well, as I say, I've done a number of other things. Of course, I'll do the periodic columns in the newspaper. I've done a number of short stories. Usually those are organized around a trip that I've taken, where mm. I'm trying to encapsulate some of the things I've learned on that trip into a story that will allow me to remember those things yeah. better. Yep. We took a trip to um, South America some years ago, and we were in the Andes, and we're learning the story of the Inca civilization and one particular character by the name of Pacatutec, who was the great assembler of the uh, empire. And I wrote a short story around him that brought in some of the symbols of Inca civilization that we'd learned about, some of the religious symbols. It's a good way of remembering things from a trip and sort of commemorating the trip. And I've I've done some composition, writing some songs and hymns. Um, I love music, and I wish I were better at, you know, creating music than I am. But I'm a great fan of particularly the Broke period. J.S. Bach, to me, kind of walks on water in terms Mm. of um, um, musicians and and our musical heritage. And so I'll use some of those things and try to learn from some of those masters and put it down in in, in musical form. Some of my music that I write is my own composition. And then I've enjoyed taking particular works that I particularly like and setting words to them. Yeah. Uh, like one about the river. It's an early American folk song that uh, ties in beautifully with the river because there's a flow to the music that ties in with uh, the, 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 the metaphor of, of the river and its flow. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you'll, you'll look for those opportunities to put things together. I'm a great believer in synergizing things, of trying to combine different things to create a, a better product from 
a, a variety of different sources, whether it's music, whether it's short stories, or whether it's poetry. It's interesting because throughout my life I've had all those impulses. I just don't take action. <laughs> well, you do an awfully good job of interpreting it for others, though. Yeah. You <laughs> Music and literature alike. Oh, but it's, uh, you know. But uh, you, uh, you're you a poet, a short story writer. You compose music. You do all these things. Uh, does all that come together in uh, in some kind of focus when you concentrate on poetry? Because... Poetry seems to me to be, it's like uh, I explained to students one time, reading a poem is like pulling the pin on a hand grenade, meaning <laughs> explodes. Uh-huh. And uh, to pack it all in into a few words, that uh, that takes a special skill. Yeah. I, you know, I wrote a verse years ago. It was actually a series of poems um, uh, in a book that I published, uh, uh, Pilgrim Footsteps, and this was Pilgrim Voices, and the last of the voices, there were like 20 of them, people from different occupations, nursing, mm. physicians, um, uh, farmers, uh, fishermen. And the last one was poems, and it sort of sums up to me my theory of poetry. It says, by meter and verse, by rhythm and rhyme, are the words that I weave a song of my time, a parable written in few words and spare, seeking sense of a moment or setting that's there, to be frozen in space and amber of thought, to inspire, refresh, and, for the willing, be taught. I'm often condemned for impractical ways, yet what's life without spirit or beauty, I say? A song without melody, a dawn without color. This is the world without poets' wonder. Mm. And to me, that kind of sums up, you know, what poetry is about, is it should summarize things in a very concise way that capture a spirit of a moment in much the same way as an impressionist painting would do, or a beautiful piece of music. And it is it is condensed, but you're also working all these, you know, music has to be part of it, imagery mm-hmm. has to be part of it, often wit and wordplay mm-hmm. and all that. Right. And to do it in a very small space is... Mm-hmm. And you do it in a structured way with meter and rhyme. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. some, sometimes. I mean, I've liberated myself a little from that. I'm not quite... You know, Robert Frost used to impress me with his line that writing poetry without uh, rhyme is like playing tennis without a net. Without a net. You've yeah. heard that one before. Yep. But, and, and I guess I was a little bit constrained in that way, but um, you know, I really see the value of free verse where you're not constrained by those structures, but more can allow the flow of an idea to That's, take over. Very yeah. true of of teaching in the classroom mm-hmm. because the yeah, structures can hold <coughs> structures can hold you in. Right, yeah. I've never moved beyond the limerick. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have their place too. Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. But, well, uh, it's Poetry Month, and you've brought some poems. So yeah, we actually, hear, let's hear something that is important to you. In well, let way. me share a couple that I've written. These kind of relate to this winter that I think we're finished with, although given what we've <laughs> yeah. had the last couple of weeks, even though we're officially in spring, I'm not so sure. One of them, uh, actually there are three of them I'm going to read. They're none of them very long. The first one was taken from a walk at Blackhawk Park on Christmas Eve morning this last year, mm. and it's entitled Christmas Eve Morning Walk at Blackhawk. Very original. <laughs> the gray shroud of yesterday's storm yields this Christmas Eve morn to glorious sunlight dappling the ground with lavender-hued shadows of spectral trees arching over snowy landscape. The sun's so bright it hurts the eyes at first, shimmering across snow-swept earth, to radiate a bluish glow of crystalline surfaces as wintry wind sweeps everything flat and clean. 
We follow footprints some of the way, partially buried by gusts of powdery white, while in other places we're first to walk, save for a solitary rabbit whose paw prints dent the snow. Overhead, bare-branched oak and hickory creak and groan, complaining of the bitter cold, as polar winds still their sap and render them brittle as frozen glass. Thoughts cross the mind of how this brilliant code afflicts some while just affecting others, of how miserere means mercy, as miserable denotes misery. Without mercy, the misery remains, as misery gives purpose to mercy. One relieves the other, as the other gives meaning to the one. A perfectly suitable symbiosis for Christmas time. Oh, it's wonderful. That's right. That's got all the, it's got the imagery, it's got the music, it's got the fascination with language and how words echo or... Um, I know. love that fooling around with Mr. Ray Ray. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was very good. That's, that, that's thought-provoking. Yeah. Well, and the image that stuck with me as I'm listening to all of them, they're wonderful, was just... Was it the paw print, a rabbit's paw print, dents the snow? Mm -hmm. And I've just never heard, you know, a footprint in the snow using dent. It's really nice. (laughs) It's just a tiny little moment that you go, oh, that's a new way of thinking about it. Well, in doing some painting, I, you know, watercolor especially, you see colors differently. You Mm -hmm. you think of snow as white and, and, you know, shadows as gray, but actually it's lavender and blue. Yeah. Because the snow, of course, is water, and when the frozen water and when the sun goes through it, it's blue. And when the shadows are cast because of the long shadows of winter, they're not gray or black usually. They're lavender colored. So you see those things. One time my wife said, we're going to paint this room white. I said, okay. I'll go get it. She says, oh, we've got to pick out the shade of white. Uh-huh. What do you mean, shade of white? Yeah. And boy, did I learn a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Many shades, that's right. Yeah, it's just, they're almost infinite. Yeah. <laughs> and I always thought it would be a fun job to be the person that names the colors, you know, in those Pantone sheets, because those are beautiful often, oh, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the way you describe 40 different whites. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> be an interesting project yeah. for a writer. Well, carry on, Mr. Poet. I appreciate this. Well, the second one was written on a trip my wife and I took to Chicago in January, and we happened to hit a weekend where the Windy City lived up every bit to its name <laughs> with a spitting sleet as we walked from our near Northside hotel to the Art Institute. Um, and so I've entitled it Wintry Day in the Windy City. Now, wait, that's a long walk. It is near north side. It was a long walk. (laughs) And we stopped about two thirds of the way through it at the Berghof to warm up a little bit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Good place to warm up. (laughs) Anyway, wintry day in the Windy City. Blurring bursts of wintry white, fluttering, then flying day to night. Rumbling rail cars overhead, honking, merging, autos blend. Huddled forms wind to and fro in paths unknown of where they go. A blustery, flustery free-for-all of sights and sounds, this city's call, where varied sorts of folks and forms defy what once was thought the norm, to seek, to search, to find, to lose, the fabled fleece of what we choose. Mm, Very nice. You got it. (laughs) Well, and do you, so when you sit down to write them, do they... Um, does the idea that, that you're working with sort of dictate the form? Do, the, do you yeah. find that suddenly you're writing in rhyme and meter or you aren't? Yeah. And the, yeah. Well, and like you were saying, Rebecca, earlier, I think when 
um, you're uh, walking, uh, as we did, as you said, Don, a fairly long walk, you've got the chance to kind of observe what's going on around mm -hmm. you. And, and particularly if you have a poetic or a literary bent, you're going to be making mental notes of this yep. image and that image and how do these things tie together. And yep. and uh, sometimes they fall into a, a, a rhymed they, verse like this. Yeah. And I think particularly with a short verse like that, having it rhymed makes it a little more... Um, the term punchy is not the right term for memorable, it. maybe. Yeah, just, but, yeah, more emphatic in terms of yeah. the the message. Yeah. Now, this last one I'm going to read. I'm then I'm done with winter. Okay, I think we're, <laughs> we're ready to be done with winter. But about two months ago, in the early part of February, uh, we took a trip to the Grand Canyon, hmm? and we happened to hit the Grand Canyon. And what we learned last night from a friend of ours who was volunteering there this winter was the snowiest winter in a hundred years. Oh, and it did not disappoint while we were there. <laughs> Um, and so the first day we arrived, it was this beautiful day with the clouds uh, multi-layered overhead, just creating these wonderful vistas of the canyon. And we drove along the southern rim from where we were staying to what's called Hermit's Rest at the far end. Okay. It's about an eight-mile drive. And stopped intermittently and took pictures, of course. And, and the next day was a whiteout. You could well, not even see the canyon from the hotel, which was perched on the edge of it. So this... Did you have the place kind of to yourself, or were you... Yeah, well, that was, was one a... of the nice things about it, Rebecca. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah. you know, And this is a good time of year to visit national parks. We did this with Zion last year and Bryce, mm -hmm. and you really didn't have the hordes of people, yeah. which, which, was, which was nice. Unfortunately, we also <laughs> didn't have a lot of you for the second day we were there because yeah. was, we were snowbound. But this is sort of that, that observation. Grand Canyon in winter. From yesterday's gusting wind that scattered clouds high above the great chasm, casting sharp shadows through the sun's determined rays, to this day's blustery, biting snow that shrouds all evidence of the canyon, binding us in its wintry veil, winter wills its way. With inimitable whim and fancy to offer unparalleled panoramas one day, and whiteouts the next, that render best laid plans a nullity, or yield serendipitous beauty. So we while away this day, surrounded by a natural glory quite hidden from view and unapproachable, as we read, play cards, or write this verse, quite helpless in winter's thrall, yet stilled and moved by nature's mighty call. Mm, yeah. You, uh, you seem nice. to be involved in the weather with your poems. <laughs> <laughs> Says the meteorologist. <laughs> I just played one on TV. I'm not doing your own. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, obviously, you know, you're a windy day in Chicago, a, a snowy Christmas Eve, and uh, blanketed with snow in uh, the Grand One Canyon. might say I was traumatized by this winter. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I just, I, as I say, I, I find that nature is one of the greatest muses around. Yeah. And if you pay attention and you look, you can just see so much wonder yeah. It's one of the things that I think drives my concern about the environment and, and what we're doing to damage it, is yeah. the wonder of nature around us and the stewardship we have for it and how so often we're taking it for granted and yeah. not maintaining it. Or, and destroying it entirely. Yeah. You know, the, That's right. You look at how many species just in recent years right. have yeah. gone you know, extinct. It's, uh, I've often talked about the way I'd uh, relax on a summer day have a hammock out in the yard, and I would lie there and just look around. There are trees all around. And I was always struck every time again and again by the infinite variety of shades of green. Right. 
Oh, yeah. And yeah. then just you marvel at it. Yeah. Just that one aspect. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you look more deeply, it's. Uh, I walked into one of those uniform pine forests that the government had put up somewhere out near Tama. And walking on that thick carpet of needles and so on, it was absolutely different. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. it, like being in a different world. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that, I think, is is the marvelous thing about nature. And the diversity that you mentioned, Rebecca, is so critical to it. Yeah. David Attenborough has done some wonderful things, the, the English um, naturalist and, and journalist, uh, talking about the diminished diversity of our, our natural world, on which we depend. Yeah. And so many of, of the course. things that we humans rely on come from that diversity. And if we eliminate that, take the bees, something as humble yeah. as, uh, as the honeybee. Yeah. Um, they pollinate our trees. They allow uh, our fruit orchards to, to prosper. Yeah. Without them, they go away. Yeah. They don't just make honey. They provide a critical role, and they're one of the endangered species now. So it, I, I think this is all part and parcel. The, uh, the, the music, the, the poetry, all tie in with this importance of conserving the natural world we have around us. And part of I'm noticing of the three poems that you just read, location is, is very important. And one of my teachers, um, Donald Hall, was convinced that um, we have these interior landscapes, maybe from where you're born, maybe from where you lived and loved for the longest span of time. But he just said, you carry them with you, and they always mm -hmm. come out in the poems, mm -hmm. whether it's a place you just passed through or a place that you have loved for a long time. And once he said that, I started paying attention and thought, yeah, it's pretty true. Mm -hmm. It certainly was in yours. How do you explain, both of you, poets, how do you explain the impulse to poetry? There are a lot of things that would shift you to make a record, a journal, and so on, and to do things, but why poetry? Becca? Mine is probably um, a emotional quality and what we were talking about earlier, kind of the compact, trying to deal with these huge questions and feelings and ideas in a manageable space <laughs> that um, I can't plot out a short story very well because I have to kind of know or I feel like I have to know ahead of time where I might be headed. And poems don't work that way for me. They're a feeling that I sit down and start writing maybe from like, um, you know, paw prints, dent the snow, something like that, where I sit down and start there, and I don't know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. um, so probably that's why I don't do rhyme and meter either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I take I those things in and just say, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's what you're doing with poetry. <laughs> Something to be said for that, too. I think in my case, I, I, I it's like watercolor painting. Um, I, there is a premium of time, and I find that I... I like to try to do things as concisely as possible. You could use the old phrase, brevity is the soul of wit. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the thing I like about poetry is it con consolidates things. It yeah. brings them, forces you to think concisely mm -hmm. and in a fairly precise way. And maybe on a very abstract idea, uh, some of the things these poems are talking about are pretty almost cosmic in their nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you, you have to do it in a tangible way and in a finite way that brings it to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that uh, that's one of the things I like about it. Just like with watercolor painting, I, uh, I do some oil painting, but mostly it's watercolor. And I like the fact that it forces you to think beforehand. You can't erase a watercolor painting. Mm 
Yeah. Or you can't paint over it really very effectively. There are right. some things you can do to fudge a little bit with sponges <laughs> and so forth. Yes. But once the color's down, you're pretty much committed. Whereas with an oil painting or with acrylics, you can paint over it and sure. you know, do something completely different. Um, and, and so I kind of like that, that, that discipline of it, the conciseness of it, and then the, just the beauty of it when it's finished. It gives you a feeling of real satisfaction to have put something down mm-hmm. that you felt needed to be put out there. And hopefully it'll be meaningful to someone else. One of the things that surprises me is that poetry does not seem to be high on people's lists of things to read, enjoy, or do. And yet, the more we look around in this program, we find so many people writing poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they do it almost in obscurity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It is the rare poet who surfaces for a time, but then disappears. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, you certainly can't make a living at it. But uh, maybe if you give poetry readings and people pay money to come hear you, possibly. (laughs) But generally, people do poetry on the side. Yeah, I think that... Yeah, go go ahead. Go ahead. Um, You do it on the side for yourself, maybe. And then those who are sort of, I want an audience, and I'm going to be deliberate about... Frost was Mm -hmm. deliberate about what he was going to read and where and when. But... Yeah, you have to do it because you love it, not because you want you know that anyone else will love it or care about it. Yeah. The thing that bothers me, I guess, a little bit about creativity um, is that it gives you a feeling of great satisfaction, but part of the satisfaction is in sharing it with others. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the frustrations for me is how do you publicize it? How do you share this thing that means something to you with other people? And it can be very difficult because yeah. – um, uh, there is such a diversity out there, and there are so many markets out there yeah. uh, that it's it's hard to find one where your uh, efforts can can be shared in a meaningful way. It's not about celebrity. It's not about fame or fortune. It's more about sharing something that was of meaning you to you yeah. with other people in a way that they're that that they're going to see it or hear it. Oddly enough, uh, I've experienced something like that when I was doing public affairs programming on uh, WHBF-TV. Once a month, I had to do a half-hour primetime show, which scared the pants off me. I mean, that's tough. But then you finally get it done, and when it's finished, there's a great sense of accomplishment, Mm -hmm. even if nobody watched. You know, you got the job done, and it pretty much filled the obligation you set yourself. Well, and I think that uh, thinking about this, you know, uh, in terms of the frustration of not having things publicized as much as you might like them to be, I think that the thing that to me is worthy about the written word is it is forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once you've put it down, it's there forever. Um, And and others can read it if they do now or not. Uh, Sometimes things aren't appreciated during their time. I think of, you know, poor Van Gogh, who spent his whole life creating work, which is now some of the most prized in the art world. And I think he sold one artwork during his lifetime. Yeah. uh, Or Emily Dickinson writing in In obscurity. 2,000 poems by hand stitched in in her her dresser drawers. Yeah. And now she's considered, you know, this voice that nobody comes close to. Or J.S. Bach. During his lifetime, he was known for being a choir master, 
and an occasional writer of cantatas. Yeah. But the Brandenburg Concerto, which are some of the most beloved works of that period right now, were written as a sort of a prospectus to try to get his foot in the door with the, I think it was the elector of Brandenburg, if my memory serves me correctly, and the guy didn't even hire him. Yeah. And so the works were just treated as sort of a throwaway. And it wasn't until Mendelssohn came along and this season of the year, the St. Matthew's Passion, it brought it to brought him to the fore. So sometimes you have to wait to have these things found. <laughs> well, we've waited all through this program at a great time, but we have run out of time. Mark, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Pleasure. Okay, and that'll do it. I'm Don Wooten with Rebecca Wee. We'll be back next week, and we hope you will too for the next edition of Scribble. <laughs>